0: Hello, 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 and welcome to the Linwoods Gospel Entertainment Podcast, where we talk to inspire. Please like, follow, comment, subscribe, and you can download for free. That way you never, ever miss an episode of this uplifting, encouraging, and inspiring show. My guest today is Dr. Frederick Eccles. He is an Obama USA leader and is one of its 2023 20, inaugural cohort members in I'll ask him about that later and ask him to tell me and explain, please, like, what does that mean? Aside from that, he is an accomplished physician, graduate of the Centers for Disease Control Prevention's Population Health Training In Place program. I hope I'm getting this right, folks. And (laughs) Morehouse Medical Diverse Executives Leading in Public Health Program he's part of that and public health consultant. And that's not even half of of what this well-accomplished doctor has done in public health and just out there in the community um, doing things at large. So Dr. Frederick Eccles. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on with you this morning.
0: Oh, we we thank you. Or, Leslie, I thank you because I'm the one talking to you right now. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to join us and be off mic. He was like, I could tell he was rushing, coming from somewhere, from meeting to meeting to meeting. So, we're blessed to have him on this morning. Now, you've done a lot in the public health sector. We'll start there. That's part of what led you to be noticed by the Obama Foundation. So, let's start with with where you I want to know where you're from talking about your journey where are you originally from?
1: So I'm originally from Atlanta Georgia or ATL as we call it um, and I was there until uh, I left for medical school so I went to Clark Atlanta University which is a historically black um, university in the in the center of downtown Atlanta um, so they gave me my foundation in biological sciences as well as my first exposure to healthcare. care. Um, after working with my mentor in Atlanta, who's Dr. Janice Bennett, who's an internationally known uh, urologist, um, that really sparked my interest in really providing better, better quality health for, for minorities. And so um, I I was accepted into Boston University School of Medicine's early selection program, so I started a uh, medical school career a little earlier than most, then uh, while attending Boston University School of Medicine, also um, enrolled in the United States Military's uh, Health Professional Scholarship Program, which is a program that is established to provide financial support for individuals, and then in return, uh, you serve um, after you complete your training at the at the university and your postgraduate training.
0: Said you 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 were there early, so how old were you entering into? To, like medical school.
1: Um, so I started my uh, first year of medical school curriculum during my senior year of undergrad. So most students would finish their undergrad career and and then have a clean cut from undergrad to medical uh, school, but I started while in undergrad, and so my, the summers after my sophomore and junior year were essentially um, not not of my own, so I was studying while other people were taking a break, and so um, they gave me an opportunity to kind of get a step ahead, but also to um, get exposure to other aspects of medicine that I otherwise wouldn't have been uh, exposed to.
0: Okay, now you did mention uh, Clark Atlanta University, I had to get my little bit in here, because I'm also a graduate of HBCU, woohoo, Fisk University, Nashville, <laughs> <laughs> That's what's up. That. That. You you've had this interest in medicine and health for a very long time. Were there did you were there any inklings of it when you were a kid? Like did you like to fix on stuff and help people out if they were feeling ill or just have a lot of empathy
1: um not really when I was growing up so I was kind of the I was definitely the quiet guy and I was definitely the one who was kind of uh, more reserved and so and I didn't really I wasn't a people person so I wasn't an extrovert I'm more of an introvert and so whenever it came to like engaging with a lot of people like I was mm-hmm. I just wasn't there I wasn't that person so uh, my primary focus when I was growing up was mathematics so I was focusing on like civil engineering uh, and aeronautical engineering and those things were my passion as I was growing up but then after starting at Clark Island University obviously other doors started opening for me and so sometimes you know when God starts doing things for you I've learned to not ask questions but just say okay God I'm here what they need me to do what they want my legacy to be uh, that's what it's going to be.
0: So that's a good motto to follow or a good way to be because no matter what it is that you that you're doing it's going to go his way anyway. That's it. So you might as well just uh, go with the flow of faith and just keep it moving.
1: <laughs> and that was a large, uh, big lesson for me to learn. Because I think sometimes, because I was having was having was trying to create my own path, mm-hmm. you know, that were, keep running into roadblocks. And then at some point you just have to say, okay, what I'm trying to do isn't working out the way that I wanted it to. So, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I... And then that, that full surrender piece is kind of uh, the most most challenging piece, because at least for me, I'm a type A type of guy. So I like to be in control of some things. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes we have to learn how to, how to surrender.
0: Yes, we do. It saves us a lot of uh, heartache and wear and tear on our souls. Absolutely. Oh, that was a good line, wasn't it? Saves you a lot of wear and tear on your souls. I'm going to have to write that down, Dr. Eccles. <laughs> 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 oh, wow. Okay, so went to yeah, Boston College, and then what what happened after that? Because you've got quite a bit of journey here as we lead up to the Obama Foundation.
1: All right, so um, so after finishing medical school, so then I went into the military. So I ended in, up in, being a medical officer for the military and did a tour in Afghanistan, um, doing Operation Enduring Freedom, uh, where I was a medical officer for uh, Marine Aviation Logistics Squadron 16 out of Miramar, California, which is also the site where Top Gun was film just a quick fact there okay um, then uh, upon my return i was recruited to uh do work in pensacola florida through their site flight surgery programs did the flight surgery program and then started doing policy work on for the aviation community and so and doing my policy work i started looking at the disparities and inequities that that were existing in the military sector as well as in the public sector and there was a lot of overlap so and for me it was surprising because in the military especially for the active duty population there are very few barriers that are in place that prevents individuals from accessing health services and so because the goal is to make sure everyone is mission ready at all times in case you know we need to respond to a national emergency related to or, or, or there's a new war or whatever you no know, we need to make sure we have a group of individuals that are uh, already mission ready so they can be deployed um, in a whim and so when I saw the inequities that and disparities that were persistent among that population that really led me down the road to start looking at system level issues and so I have my time with the military and um, i was recruited by the illinois department of public health um, i led their communicable disease division for uh, for a few years and i did more work um, looking at inequities and, and disparity and then really became more familiar with how systems were working and how systemic racism has really influenced um, and controlled how systems function in a manner that disadvantages uh, certain populations based on their Ge- geographic location based on their race and ethnicity as well as their income um, and getting into uh, executive level positions you know, with local government even when I was in the military the, the focus was to not just accept the status quo but really to do my very best to change the narrative for the, our most vulnerable and our most marginalized populations. and so um, while I was with the Illinois Department of Public Health I was responsible for leaving the Communicable Disease Division and while I was in that role there was some significant public health emergency that we encountered that we experienced. One was the Ebola pandemic. Um, so I was leaving the state's response for that. And then shortly after the Ebola pandemic, we had the Zika virus pandemic. Uh, so I was responsible for leaving the state for that. And then at the baseline, we had a lot of um, smaller public health emergencies that were impacting communications or, uh, population across the state. Uh, for example, um, there was a wave of uh, outbreaks related to vaccine-preventable diseases such as measles and mumps uh, across the state. And in some cases, the nation was being impacted by that as well. So, leaving those responses, but also making sure that I was le- leaving the response um, with an equity lens. so making sure I was not causing additional harm to the population that were already disadvantaged, but instead providing with resources and support and information so that they could be empowered during those um, those uh, difficult times uh, and have better health outcomes.
0: So you got all this stuff going on, and then you were uh, you were tapped at some point to be, um, Work in St. Louis County as their health director. Is that right? Was it St. Louis City or County?
1: So St. Louis County first. So yes, I was with St. Louis County um, after I left the Illinois Department of Public Health, and in my role with St. Louis County, I was overseeing the communicable disease division, um, vector veterinary programs, and the emergency response programs for the uh, St. Louis County Department of Public Health.
0: And then that led into led the way with uh, the COVID nineteen response. Is that right? So Working that was with that
1: after after St. Louis County, I was. Um, um, selected Mayor Lyda Cruz to serve as the Director of Health for the City of St. Louis, and I started with the City of St. Louis February nineteenth of twenty nineteen. And a few months thereafter, we had the first co- first first case of COVID that was diagnosed across the world. And then in March of that year, we had our first reported case in the City of St. Louis. So uh, when I was working as the Director of Health for the City of St. Louis, I oversaw the city's response to uh, the COVID nineteen.
0: You've done all these great things. What would you say has been most challenging? for you in your in your career now in public health care and then we're, and then we'll also talk about you you also have your own nonprofit uh, non-profit but what's been most challenging for you, I
1: think the most challenging piece for me is uh, or aspect of the work for me has been um, the fact that people like to speak rhetoric, but they don't really like to do the work. And mm. especially when it comes down to work related to um, health equity, because oftentimes what happens with equity is people perceive that we're taking resources away from those individuals who already have resources. Um, but what we're really doing is empowering the entire system, empowering those individuals who, particularly, who don't have access or who have limited access to health. And and social service resources. So they too have a fair chance to achieve their best level of health. And sometimes people are frightened by that, um, especially when we talk about empowering young black men, young black women to give them access to the same resources, um, because we know that you know, if they're given the same resources, that we change their narrative um, for their life trajectory over the long term, not just uh, the immediate future. And so for, you know, because of the, the tentacles of uh, systemic racism and how it has a strong hold on how government functions how the private sector functions you know those uh, people like to talk about the uh, equity and and how important it is but when it actually comes to doing the work you get a lot of backlash and i think one prime example of that occurred during covid so when the when Monoclonal antibody treatment became available. My goal was to get it into the communities where I knew that people were being hit the hardest. So, in the African American communities, where we had higher rates of uh, chronic illnesses such as diabetes, heart disease, chronic uh, chronic lung disease, etc., knew that those populations were going to be hit very hard, and we had we would have had um higher death rates in those communities. But I prioritized getting the that treatment to the African-American community. And that was backlash from the health system. That was backlash from other third parties who felt like they should those resources should have gone to places like West County and South County and other places where you have individuals who have access to those resources already. And so I refused to, again, adopt the status quo and really prioritize um, ensuring that we provide resources for those individuals individuals who needed us the most.
0: That's when we saw truly saw the whole country was uh, exposed and showing the despair between health care for people of color and people of, let's say, the majority of society. And it was like a real, real eye-opener for folks. We already knew it, right? So it's like, right. this ain't nothing new, y'all, but it's like definitely exposed us to ourselves.
1: Absolutely. And, and one of the things that I was hoping was going to come out of the pandemic was that you know, the, the communication channels that had been open and the, the partnerships and the collaborations that have been um, uh, executed that those things will stay in place, but what, what I've seen since the pandemic has kind of dwindled down is that those people are going back into their silos, and so what that means is that people are no longer really prioritizing and having in-depth discussions about um, the needs of our most vulnerable populations, and so um and in the city of in the city and the county. There's so many disparities, so many inequities um that should be addressed. You know, we have the resources to address them. It would be one thing if this if the government didn't have the resources to address them and everyone was in the same boat. But we have resources in the St. Louis region to address these inequities and disparities. But it's really about having individuals and organizations that are willing to come together to lift the work together in spite of political agendas, in spite of personal agendas, to really help our help the help the community. And so my hope is again that my hope is that those those things will continue to happen. But Unfortunately, people have kind of gone back into their silos, but, but I haven't lost hope yet. I think there are still some champions out in the community that are really working to make sure that the most vulnerable among us still have a fair chance to, to have a decent quality of
0: life. And it's, you know, it, it's it's really sad to, like you said, people have gone back into their silos during the pandemic. Oh, everybody cared about helping. And the less fortunate folks are some, a lot of the people of color didn't have access to proper health care. And now, like you said, they, they've just retreated. And it's something that didn't just happen here. It was all over the U.S. And they've done the same thing in every every major uh, metropolitan area. They've gone back into your quote-unquote silos. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk about the Obama Foundation. How did you come to their attention? And then tell us, what does the Obama Foundation do in case there are people out there that have no idea what it is that they do?
1: So the Obama Foundation is uh, President Barack Obama's philanthropic arm of his of what he's doing now. And so his foundation is responsible for um, creating fellowship programs, internships, uh, internship programs for different populations. And they also do a lot of work in community. I think one of the big folks, the big focus right now is the presidential library that's being built in Chicago. And then what that will mean for the, um, not only for the city of Chicago, but what that will mean for the nation and for the world. Over the last five years or so, Dr. President Obama has been, working with leading lead, leaders across the world, but he didn't want to continue working with leaders who have been established. He wanted to really um, create a pipeline for um, leaders who are willing to, willing to challenge the status quo in democracy across the globe. And so he started um, this leadership program in three other areas of the world. So um, he's done them in Europe, Asia and Africa Um, then this year they want they really wanted to do one in the United States and this is the first cohort of leaders in the United States and the goal is to provide them with tools resources information so that they can um, be better equipped to again challenge the status quo and democracy make democracy more more just and equitable.
0: Now you were chosen in 2023 as an Obama Foundation USA leader so what is it that you do in that position? Uh,
1: So in this position, so I work really closely with the Obama Foundation staff, so there's a lot of training and development that we're going through, but I'm also working with them to um, connect to other leaders across the globe. For example, um, uh, a few weeks ago, I had had the opportunity to meet with uh, individuals from Africa who are addressing, working to address some of the same issues we're facing here in America as it relates to access to health services. So when we think about rural Missouri, for example, a lot of the issues that they have related to limited Wi-Fi, limited access to technology. Other countries, particularly countries in Africa uh, and across the world, have those same challenges. And so our goal is to kind of work together and, and create a think tank around what types of policies will be most effective to helping address the root cause of those issues, but also to make sure that whatever solution is established, make sure those solutions are sustainable over time and that there's proper uh, support from the responsible uh, government authority.
0: Before I get to my next question on, on the Obama. Foundation and you as a U.S.A. leader, talk to me a little bit about your nonprofit, and then we'll jump back into the Obama Foundation.
1: Yeah, so my pro- my nonprofit, which is uh, Population Health and Social Justice Consulting LLC, is um, was created um, because of the challenges that I was seeing in my time with uh, local and state government. So one of the challenges with local and state government, as we talked about before, has been you know, these silos that exist. And so uh, when silos exist, you know, we we miss opportunities to leverage our funding leverage our expertise, leverage our resources um, to better meet the needs of community. And one of the things that one of the things I was able to accomplish while working for the uh, the city of St. Louis and in St. Louis County was leveraging those other areas of government and even in, in the in the private sector to better meet the needs of the community. And I think a prime example of that was the work that I did during COVID overseeing the implementation of the city's first evidence based violence prevention program. Um, so when we initially received the information on the program, or at least when I was asked to lead that initiative by Mayor Krusem, I looked at the template that was kind of created or that was being modeled in other areas. And the question that um, I raised to them um, was, OK, you have individuals come in and they help de-escalate situations. But then what happens after the de- de-escalation? Mm. So Because we know that individuals who are vulnerable, they're going back to the same environments that make them that increase their risk for committing acts of violence and also um, acts of, of uh, other illegal uh, activities. And so what were we doing? My question to the to the team was what? Are we doing to address the root cause of the issue, not just in the DS to the escalate situations? And so as I built out that program, I made sure that we connected with organizations that were able to provide comprehensive wraparound services to meet the unmet needs of individuals who are deemed to be high risk. Because, for example, uh, food access that's something that is really challenging and the food acts food could be inaccessible not only because of for low geographical reason but it could be inaccessible because the individual isn't making livable wages mm. and so a lot of the people who are higher risk you know that could be the tipping point for them to commit an act of violence or an act of uh, another illegal activity such as and so by connecting with organizations such as Urban League of Metropolitan St. Louis and Employment Connection, we were able to not only de-escalate situations in the field, but we also we're also able to get those individuals who are high risk connected to other critical wraparound services such as uh, food assistance, utility assistance, mortgage rental assistance, jobs, job training, et cetera. And so they have a fair chance to reacclimate into society because um, we were dealing with some of the one of our most vulnerable populations, which are uh, individuals who are justice and And I want to make sure we were giving them a fair chance because as I looked at the types of opportunities they were being afforded when they were discharged from uh, the penal system. Mm -hmm. Uh, The one thing that I found was that some organizations were just um, hiring them because it allows them to check a box versus really making sure that they were receiving a livable wage and and making sure they were receiving um, uh, comprehensive benefits. And so we have individuals who are just as involved and and they're not making a livable wage, they're struggling to put food on their table, they have difficulty uh, attaining transportation. Uh, but, they, but yet they're working hard because they're really trying to do the right thing. We have to do a better job of making sure we support them in a way that is meaningful. And so, um, by changing the paradigm around how we treat justice-involved individuals, um, that really helped shape that program so that we were able to have significant accomplishments, such as you know the twenty-six percent reduction in homicides at the height of the pandemic, uh, when other other areas across the country were seeing increased rates of homicide. Uh, and then, in particular, in the areas where the program was being implemented, there was a forty-three percent reduction. In homicides in the city of St. Louis, and so that was something that's really important. that required proper oversight. That was a lot of my time that was spent doing COVID and overseeing that program, but I was determined to make sure that I did my very best to make sure those individuals, you know, those most marginalized, those most vulnerable individuals, you know, were properly supported in, in a way that really helped them change their life trajectory.
0: Well, I'm I'm happy to hear that of your involvement in, in that. We've had some experiences in my family. with senseless gun violence, I had a 19-year-old nephew who was murdered in 2017 december 2017 he and some friends were going over to another friend's house to play video games and one of their other friends that they know was there waiting for them shot and killed him uh, at the site and what is the root cause of this uh, senseless gun violence why did you do that couldn't it have stopped been stopped before it got to that point but anyway i'm just chiming in but, uh, I think,
1: but I think you bring uh-huh. up a really good point. So I think, you know, a lot of the focus in the United States has been, you know, um, dealing with the aftermath of gun violence, not mm-hmm. working upstream, but we have to work upstream. So these the little kids, the little, the little boys and girls that, you know, when they're in elementary school, preschool, leaving, mm-hmm. like having, starting having discussions about them or what health really means um, is really important, but then also working with their parents. I think right now we have a generation of younger parents who are ill-informed and in some cases uneducated about some really critical topics so we really have to do a better job of working with them and educating them Mm -hmm. Um, but doing it in a way that is meaningful to them I think in government so we have this that's been this really horrible practice of just packaging information and getting it out and expecting people to adhere to the recommendations. Now, understanding that in places like the city of St. Louis, the amount of illiteracy that exists amongst our most vulnerable population is extremely high. Mm-hmm. Extremely high. And so working to to address those those key issues, the, edu- the education system has failed our students uh, and failed our adults. And so when we're working to create initiatives, we really have to make sure there's, the information that's being packaged and released is done so in a way that can be u- useful to them uh, and not just doing something as a checkbox because we have
0: federal funding. Now. As we move on to wrap things up here, in reference to the Obama Foundation and you as an Obama USA leader, how can we get more information on that and how can people connect with you in the digital space of things?
1: And so the um, for the Obama Foundation, so they have a lot of different activities that are Going, that are going on late, they do a lot of promotions through social media, so whether Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and so if you click on those links, um, that'll take you to their website and then you can just sign up for their newsletter, which comes out regularly. It um, gives you information on what the foundation is doing. People who are interested in getting in, in touch with me, they can primarily contact me by email, which is my first name dot last name at gmail, which is frederick.echols at gmail.com and they can also follow me on, on platforms like uh, Facebook. So if you go on Facebook and Google frederick eccles i'll I'll pop up and so uh, feel free to reach out to me via facebook or via email uh, and i try to do my very best to respond in a timely
0: manner all right then so that's frederick uh, Uh, f-r-e-d-e-r-i-c-k
1: f-r-e-d-r-i-c-k
0: see we have to spell stuff out here dr (laughs) and eccles (laughs) e-c-h-o-l-s is that did i get that part right yes yes, yes. thank you so much for joining us today and um, we wish you all the best and god bless you in everything that you do as you continue to do the work that is making a difference in the lives of people around the world thank you so much thank you so much for having me and thank you folks for joining us once again for another episode of the lynn woods gospel entertainment show make sure that you subscribe right now and you can do it right now by pressing that subscribe button and that way you will never never miss an episode of this uplifting, encouraging and inspiring show. And by the way, you can download for free. Now if you'd like to reach me, Lynn Woods, you can find me on X, formerly Twitter at Lynn Woods. Or you can find me also at Facebook and LinkedIn at Lynn Woods or TikTok or Instagram at Lynn Woods 96. This has been the Linwoods Gospel Entertainment Show, where we talk to inspire. And a Merry, Merry Christmas to you and a Happy New Year. God bless.